Okay. Good morning, church. How's everybody doing this morning? Wow, it doesn't sound like you are. Okay. You know, I think it was about 15 years ago, I went to have lunch with a friend of mine. He was a trainer at the gym that I taught spinning at. And as we were having lunch together, he started telling me about his marital issues, that his wife was going to divorce him. So I told him, where is Christ in your life? Is Christ in the center of your marriage? How are you living your life? Again, are you doing his will? And he looked at me and said, don't bring me that Christianity stuff, please. And I said, what are you talking about? What do you believe in? He goes, I don't believe in God. Are you an atheist, I asked. He said, yeah. I said, wow, I never knew that. So let me ask you, I said, what happens when you die? Do you believe there's a heaven and a hell? He said, nah, man. That's a bunch of fairy tales. So then what happens? If there's no heaven and if there's no hell, what happens when you die, when I die, when anybody dies? He says, nothing. It's just black. And then he asked me, he says this, do you remember how it was before you were born? I said, no. Exactly, he said. That's how it's going to be after we die. I said, okay. Let's pretend just for a moment that you're right and I'm wrong. So if when I die, if there is no heaven or hell, what do I have to lose? I said, I lived a good life. I lived a life with hope. My marriage was centered on Christ. And because I tried to live Christ-like, I believe I was a better father, a better husband, a better friend. What do I have to lose if you were right and I was wrong? But what if I'm right and you're wrong? You've got everything to lose. Not only did you live a life without hope, now you're going to spend eternity without hope. And he just stopped and he said, nah, man. That ain't true. I don't know where my friend is now. I don't know if God has changed his heart or not. I hope so. Because one day, if God doesn't change his heart, one day he'll realize the truth. You know, in his book, uh, Mere Christianity, the author C.S. Lewis says that people believe three things when it comes to Jesus Christ. They either believe that Jesus Christ was a lunatic, that he was a liar, or that he was Lord. I believe today that the same is true. I believe some people think that Jesus Christ is a liar, maybe a lunatic, but sadly, church, a lot of people nowadays don't believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord of all. This is how it is today, and this is how it was thousands of years ago when Jesus walked this earth. So you have your Bibles with you. Please open them up to Mark chapter 3. We're continuing our series in the gospel according to Mark. We're going to pick up in verse 20. 
pick up right where we left off last week. And we're going to look at verses 20 to 35 of chapter 3 of the gospel according to Mark. If you have your journals with you and always to tell you to bring your Bibles, we're going to take a lot of notes hopefully today. We've got a lot to learn in a very little time. So this is how we're going to break down today's verses. Three parts. We're going to see, first of all, who people thought Jesus was. And many people thought he was a lunatic. And we're going to see that from verses 20 to 21. That's going to be the breakdown there. And then we're going to see who the scribes thought Jesus was. And many people thought that he was a liar. And we're going to see that from verses 20 to 30. Those are your breakdowns. And then lastly, we're going to see who the disciples thought Jesus was. And the disciples thought that he was Lord. And that is going to be seen from verses 31 to 35. Before we jump to these verses, let me recap quickly what we learned last week. We learned that Jesus was preaching the gospel, what he came to do. And of course, he had thousands maybe now by now following him, trying to hear from Jesus. But more than that, they were trying to be healed by Jesus. As a matter of fact, it had gone so crowded that Jesus had a, a boat just in case he needed to escape. And then we read that he goes off and he, he prays and asks God that he chooses 12 men. And we read that he chose 12 apostles, 12 Jewish men who were not qualified but changed the world. And that's what we're going to pick up today. Verse 20, chapter 3 of Mark. It says this, then Jesus went home. Now, he didn't have a house. What Mark is saying is that we went back to the city of Capernaum, which was his home base. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. So he goes back into town. And it's so packed at this house that he's preaching at. But now we read that he doesn't even have time to eat. Him and his apostles are so busy that they can't even eat from beginning of the day to the end of the day. It's just busyness after busyness because of all the crowd. This crowd demanded so much of their attention that time flew by. Verse 21, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now that word family there in Greek is atos, which means those of him. It literally means his family, his half-brothers, his half-sisters, Jesus' mother Mary. I mention this because this might be a shock to some of you. Yes, Mary and Joseph had other children. As a matter of fact, they're going to be named later on in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verse 3. We also hear their names, the half-brothers and the half-sisters, in Matthew, chapter 15, verse 55. So when the family, Jesus' family, heard of all that he's teaching, of all these miraculous things that he's doing, and then they find out that now he's not even eating, what do they do? It says they came down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was about 30 miles away. But they come down to seize him, it says. 
That word seize in Greek is kratel, which means to take control of him. It is a word used when you're going to arrest somebody. And why did they want to come down and seize him? It says right there, he is out of his mind. He's gone crazy. Our family member is gone crazy. He's become a religious freak. He is a lunatic. When I first became a believer, my wife probably became a believer after six months since I did. And I remember during that time, I would try to push the Bible towards my wife. I would try to persuade my wife of the truth. I would tell her, look, what we've been taught isn't all true. And we go back and forth. As a matter of fact, when I became a believer, she was so excited that, that I had turned back to religion. And so she said, let's go back to church. We hadn't been to church in years. So we went back to the only church we knew, Catholic church. I'm not, by no means, I am not dogging on the Catholic church. So one week we would go to Catholic church, one week we'd come to Grace, back and forth for about six months. And on the six months I told CJ, I'm done. I'm learning more about God's truth and what I'm hearing from the priest is not jiving with what I'm learning. I am completely done. And we got into this huge argument. It was one Sunday. And I stopped and I said, CJ, look at why we're arguing. We're arguing of where we're going to go and worship God. From that moment, church, I stopped pushing and I started praying. I mention this to you because I know some of you are in the situation right now where CJ and I used to be. I know, you, I know some of you might have a spouse who doesn't want to join you to church. Some of you might have children that say, nah, that's not for me. You go on, do. You do you. If this is you, church, right now, this is what I'm going to tell you. Prayer and patience over persuasion. Prayer and patience over persuasion. Just keep praying. Come on, coming to, keep coming to church. They will see a change in you. God, hopefully, will reveal in their hearts the truth and what it means to come and worship. But you need to just deal with them in love and in patience. Verse 22, it says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demon he cast out the demons. So now we have the scribes coming down from Jerusalem. Now these aren't just any scribes. These are the big dogs. These are the mero meros coming all the way from Jerusalem, from a headquarters. And they came down not to see what was going on. They came down to destroy him. You remember, church, their minds had been set already. We're going to destroy Jesus. We read about this two weeks ago in Mark chapter 3, verse 6. This is how it says. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy Jesus him minds already set no matter what happened around them no matter what others told 
them about Jesus, they were set. Destroy Jesus, period. Again, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. These scribes come down there and they start to accuse Jesus of two things. First, they accuse him of being possessed by Beelzebul. Who is Beelzebul? Who was Beelzebul? Beelzebul was a name given by the Jewish people to the devil, the prince of demons. And so the scribes were accusing Jesus of being possessed by Satan himself. That was the first accusation. The second accusation, they were accusing Jesus of casting out demons, not by the power of God, but by the power of Satan himself. Two ridiculous accusations that he was possessed by Satan and that he was in alliance with Satan. I love what Jesus does next, the way he responds to them. Verse 23, and he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? I picture Jesus did this. Guys, guys, come here. Come here, listen. Are you listening to yourselves? Can you hear what you're accusing me of? Your accusations make no sense, fellas. How can Satan cast out Satan? Jesus is now going to deal with, a, with these accusations. First, he's going to deal with the accusation of him being in alliance with Satan. Verse 24, he says this. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Verse 25, and if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And then verse 26, and if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end, he says. Notice, you have your Bibles, circle this. He uses three consecutive ifs. Repetition, repetition, three consecutive ifs. He says, if a house and if a kingdom is divided, if they're divided against themselves, they cannot stand, they will not stand. A kingdom or a house divided against itself in purpose and in goals will not survive is what Jesus is saying. And then he says, and if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Jesus is pointing out the obvious Again, he was saying, guys, your accusations are nonsense. They are ridiculous. How can you be accusing me of this? Why would Satan want to use his own powers to defeat his own army by casting out demons? Come on, guys. But no matter what, no matter how ridiculous their accusations were, the scribes, the scribes believed that Jesus was a liar, period. No matter how much evidence they saw before him, the scribes' hearts were hardened to the truth. And now Jesus is going to deal with the other accusation of him being possessed by Satan himself. 
verse 27. He says this, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus uses his word picture, a parable to make his point. I want to point out four observations in this parable. Number one, in this parable, Satan is the strong man. The strong man, Jesus is saying, is Satan. Number two, his house, Satan's house, is the realm of sin. It's the realm of sickness, of demon possessions, and death. The third observation, his, his possessions, Satan's possessions, are people who are enslaved to these things, who are enslaved to sin. And then lastly, the demons are Satan's agents who carry out Satan's diabolic activity. So what Jesus is saying here, after the strong man, which is Satan, is bound, which, is, which means to be tied up, then you can go in and take his stuff. You can plunder his, plunder his stuff. In essence, what Jesus was saying is this, only God can bind Satan. And he says, I have bound Satan. I am God. That's what Jesus was saying. That's what Jesus was trying to make obvious to all the people there. And of course, including the scribes. Church, here is the truth. Jesus Christ is not a lunatic. Jesus Christ is not a liar. Jesus is Lord. Lord of all. Period. And that's what his point was all about. And now Jesus is going to issue a strong warning to the scribes, but not only to the scribes, to all the audience that is hearing his word now as well. Here's what he says in verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. First of all, he begins with an affirmation. Truly, I say to you. It's a declaration of truth. This affirmation, by the way, is only spoken by Jesus in the Gospels. And after this affirmation, he gives us a reassurance. He says this, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Jesus is declaring two truths here in this verse, verse 28. First of all, he says, all sins will be forgiven. Do you guys know that all means all? All sins will be forgiven. And then the second declaration he says is this, whatever blasphemy spoken will also be forgiven. Take note of this. This is so important. Two things. All sins will be forgiven, and whatever blasphemies pronounced against God will also be forgiven. This is so important. And I believe we all know what sin is, right? Sin literally means to miss the mark. Sin means to disobey God in actions or in thoughts. But what about blasphemy? Do we know what blasphemy is? Blasphemy can be described as a defiant irreverence. So when Jesus says this, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, I imagine everyone there at that house probably went, whoo-wee, that's a relief. 
Thank you, Jesus. But then, but then Jesus says this, verse 29. But, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Verse 30. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And I imagine everybody there went, uh-oh. Oops. Jesus said, wait a second. Before you start celebrating, there is one exception. And that exception is blasphemy. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, he says, will never, never be forgiven. The unforgivable sin. What is this? What is this unforgivable sin that I believe so many Christians have tried to answer, have wondered, what really is this unforgivable sin? Church, in this verse, I believe two things. I believe that those that are concerned should be comfortable. And those that are comfortable should be concerned. What do I mean by that? See, some people have no idea that they could eventually commit this sin. And so they are comfortable when I believe they should be concerned. On the other hand, some people believe they have committed this sin or can commit this sin. And they are concerned when they should be comfortable. So what is this unforgivable sin? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. To answer that, let me begin by saying what it's not. What is not the unforgivable sin? Now, these are sins, but it's not the unforgivable sin. It is not cursing the Holy Spirit. That's not what this is. It is not taking the Lord's name in vain. Let me pause here for just a second. Man, I hear this all the time from Christians. Some of my friends constantly take the Lord's name in vain. They say things like, oh my God, are you serious? Jesus Christ, don't let that be. We need to, church. We need to stop saying those things. God's name is a holy name. It's a name above all names. We can't just yell out his name just flippantly. We need to stop. Stop using his name in vain. It's a second commandment. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not adultery. It's not sexual perversion. It is not murder. It is not committing multiple murders. It is not genocide. And listen, it is not suicide. These are sins, but they are not the unforgivable sin. So what is, what is the unforgivable sin? Two very important characteristics that you need to make note of to answer this question. First of all, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a specific sin. Specific. Matthew writes about the same incident we're reading about in Mark. And here's what he writes in Matthew chapter 12, verse 32. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, whoever speaks a word against Jesus, Jesus and the Father are one, will be forgiven. But 
Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. It is a specific sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit only, not against God, specific. The other thing that we need to make note of, this unforgivable sin is a sin that requires knowledge. It requires knowledge. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 23, Verse 24, Father, forgive them. Why? For they know not what they do. Jesus hanging on the cross, people below him, making fun of him, blaspheming him. Hey, if you are the son of man, get down from there. And what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them. Forgive their activities. Forgive their blasphemy. For they do not know. They don't know. They don't know what they are doing. And here, church, in Mark, the scribes, the religious leaders, knew exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly who Jesus was. They knew. They knew the scriptures. They knew that prophecy how would we be fulfilled when Messiah would come? They knew that Messiah would come. And he would heal the blind, heal the mute, heal the lepers. Jesus had done all these things. As a matter of fact, Jesus had done just that in this incident. He had just casted out a, 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 an unclean spirit from a man who was blind and mute and he was cured. They saw Messiah in front of their eyes and still, they still didn't believe even though they knew it. They had seen all the wonderful works of Jesus. They had heard the truths that he had been proclaiming, proclaiming the truths with authority, yet they deliberately chose to deny the truth and blasphemy the Holy Spirit. They knew the truth, they witnessed the truth, but yet they rejected the truth. Let me say one more thing before we go on. This sin mentioned, the sin mentioned here in Mark was, a spe was specific to a specific incident. Jesus was on earth casting out demons when the scribes witnessed this. So the question, the real question, church, I believe, is this. Can this sin be committed today? I believe the answer is yes. Yes, it can. See, church, the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin today is that of continued unbelief. Let me say that again. The unforgivable sin today is that of continued unbelief. That's what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is is that of continued unbelief. There is no pardon at all for a person who dies rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord, period. And the Holy Spirit, church, is at work today convicting the unsaved of their sin. And if a person never repents and rejects Christ, then they are choosing hell over heaven. As my friend was if a person knowingly says that Jesus Christ is a lunatic Jesus Christ is a liar and never declares Jesus Christ as Lord and never repents 
they will never be forgiven. And Paul says this in Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They know it, but they suppress it. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has revealed it to them, has shown it to them. He says this in verse 21. For although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And lastly, verse 24 of Romans chapter 1. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. There are people, sadly church, there are people who will continuously reject the Holy Spirit. There are people who are knowingly suppressing the truth, exchanging the truth for a lie. There are people who prefer, prefer darkness over light. And this is why John writes this in John 3, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. I love what one commentary says about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He says this. Very simply, it is the ongoing, continual rejection of the witness of the Holy Spirit to the divinity and saviorhood of Christ. It is a perversion in the heart which chooses to call light and darkness and darkness and light. It is one's preference for darkness even though, even though, he has been exposed to the light. Again, verse 29. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Two more very important observations. Their sin here was a continuous action, not just one single action. This is why Jesus says they were saying it was a continuous action against all reasons, against all proof. They persisted in their blasphemy. The second observation, which is really important here. Jesus did not say that they had committed the sin. He was warning them. Why do I say that? Because it says, it is guilty of eternal sin. Those words, is guilty, in Greek is inakos, which means close to. Jesus was telling the scribes, careful, fellas. You're about to go over a cliff. You're about to commit a sin that will not be forgiven. He was warning them. Just like the author of Hebrews warned the Jewish people in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. He says this, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth... There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. 
A persistent attitude of willful unbelief can harden a heart to a condition in which repentance and forgiveness, both, both given by the Holy Spirit, can become impossible. And this is why it's so important, church, to proclaim that Jesus Christ is not a lunatic. He is not a liar. He is Lord. Then Jesus goes back and talks about family. Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came. Now most likely, Joseph is, is no longer alive in this time. That's why his name is not mentioned. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So the family finally arrives from Jerusalem and they get to the house, but it's so packed. So they tell people, hey, pass the word. Tell Jesus that his family's here to see him. So they do that. And eventually it gets to Jesus. And this is how Jesus responds. Verse 33. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? He responds by asking a rhetorical question. Who are? Who really are my mother and my brothers? Now, Jesus was not being rude. He was not severing ties with his family. He was not dishonoring his mother or his family. What Jesus was simply doing, he was about to tell them the sort of people that are his mother and his brothers. Watch verse 34. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. He looks around at the people that are inside the house, sitting around him, looking at his disciples and says, Here, these are my mother, these are my brothers. These are the sort of people I call family. The people that have left everything to follow me. The people that are following me because they believe in me. The people that are following me because of who I am, not because of what I can do. But notice, don't miss this. Jesus gives a very specific qualification to identify those he considers family. He says, whoever does the will of God. Whoever does the will of God are my brothers and sisters and my mother those who obey him not out of obligation but out of adoration those that follow him not because of what he can do because of what who he is because he is lord he is messiah he is the savior of the world that's who he calls family haven't you noticed that when you meet somebody for the first time and after having conversation with them, you realize that they are a Christian and you say, hey, I'm a Christian too. Really, what church you go to? And then there's this bond, this family bond. Why is that? Because anyone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, anyone who repents and asks for forgiveness and believes in the heart that his sacrifice was sufficient for the penalty of our sin, at that moment, we become his family. We become brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. And how is this possible? It's because of Jesus' perfect submission of obedience to his Father. 
he was perfectly obedient all the way to the cross. We read in the Gospels, church, right before Jesus is going to be arrested and crucified, praying to the Father, Father, if there's any other way, any other way, but then he says this three times, let your will be done, not through his obedience, we are made righteous. Paul writes in Romans 5:19, for as by the one man's disobedience, referring to Adam, they may they the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, talking about Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Church, through his death, like I mentioned, we become his family, those that believe. John 1, verse 12, but all but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become his family, the children of God. So who is Jesus in your life? Honestly, who is Jesus in your life? Do you think he is a lunatic? Maybe some of you here are, are here for the first time because your Jesus freak friend has kept on inviting you and inviting you and inviting you. Come, come and check it out. And so you're here. Maybe you're just here and been coming for a while just, just to go through the motions. But you don't really believe this to be true. So, is Jesus a liar? Is Jesus a liar in your life? Do you refuse to accept the truth? No matter how evident it's all around you, maybe you have read the Bible, you have heard the gospel every Sunday, saved by grace through faith, not by works. You have seen the changes that the Holy Spirit has done to your friends, to your family, but yet you still reject His grace and His forgiveness. Or... Or is Jesus your Lord? But not just by saying he is your Lord, but by living out his will. Are you, be honest with yourself, are you living his will? Or are you living your will? Are you really part of his family? Are you serving the way God has called his family to serve? Not only here at church on Sundays, but throughout are you in community the way God has called his family to be in community? Relying on one another, holding each other accountable. Are you loving one another no matter what the way Jesus has commanded his family to love one another? Have you surrendered all? Have you truly decided to follow Jesus? Because if you have... Because if you have, then you know that Jesus is not a lunatic. He is not a liar. Jesus truly is Lord. Let's pray. Father, that is my prayer this morning. That we don't just say we're Christians or believe by word that you are Lord. Even though we are to declare it with our words. But also, we need to back it up with our fruits. We need to back it up with our actions. I believe so many people at church today just go through the motions, <clears throat> wanting to be part of your family, 
but, not a, but are not submitting in obedience to do your will. So, Father, change our hearts. Begin with me. At every moment, every breath that I take, let it be your will, not mine, so that people can see who truly is the Lord of my life. I pray for this, for your church, Grace Bible Church, so that we can be a light to a community that desperately needs your light. And I pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. I love you, church. God bless you guys.